Leviticus 23, 1 through 11, and 23 through 31. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month, is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. The word of the Lord. There are certain realities about living in this world that there's just no getting around. So, for instance, if you don't have food or water, you will die. There is no getting around that reality. Or if babies aren't hugged, touched, and loved, they will shrivel up and die. There's certain realities about living in this world. There's just no getting around. Here's the reality I want to focus on this morning. We need to know the story we're in to know how to live in this world. In other words, every human being needs 
an overarching story that helps us make sense of the world and our place in it. If we don't have that, it is very difficult to function in life. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, at a global level, there is a growing loss of confidence in the future of this world. Simply put, people are freaked out. We, um, we're dealing with things like climate change, with technology that invades our privacy, with social media that's making us depressed, with uh, zero trust in any institutions, with a post-truth, post-fact world, with uh, massive global unrest, with a widening gap between the rich and the poor. We could just keep going on and on down the list. New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg recently wrote that for many people, the future feels very dark because we no longer have a universal vision of progress that we can all agree on. And she says one of the biggest challenges in our society today is, is creating belief in a future that doesn't feel like a nightmare. She's essentially saying, we need to know the story we're in to know how to live in the world. Or let me offer you another example more at the personal level. One of the big stories in our culture today is that there is no big story. In other words, there is no God, and everything in this world, including you and me, is ultimately meaningless. Therefore, we have to create our own meaning in life. We have to create our own identities. Does that sound familiar to you? Even if you believe in God, there, it's almost impossible to resist the pull of that story in our culture, that there is no big story. There's only your little stories. There is a collapse of meaning in our culture. And for many people today, especially a lot of young people, that is increasingly unbearable. And, and just partying or hooking up or, or filling our lives with pleasure and possessions isn't filling that deficit. And so many people today are turning to things like astrology or Wicca or the occult or mindfulness meditation, something, because people need a story that's bigger than themselves. If that's you, Leviticus helps. Because at its essence, Leviticus is, is about a God who's rescuing people out of slavery, bringing them into relationship with himself, transforming them, and then sending them back out into the world to be vessels of this story about a God who's transforming the world. We need to know the story we're in to know how to live in the world. Leviticus gives us a story, and especially this chapter. How? Let's walk through it in three steps this morning. We're gonna see the story of Israel, we're going to see that the story of Israel is the story of us. And lastly, we're going to see how we should live in light of this story. Okay? The story of Israel. The story of Israel is the story of us. And lastly, how we should live in light of this story. So first, the story of Israel. Now, Leviticus, uh, infamously, is a hard book to read. You've got all these rituals. There's lots of repetition, including in this passage. So in verse 2, God tells Israel... These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And then there's just a whole chapter full of these things. Now, it would be easy for us to say, these are just a bunch of mindless religious rituals. But before we say that, let's learn a little bit more about what's going on and then see how it relates to us. First, 
that word or phrase, appointed feasts, is one word in the Hebrew that literally means appointment or meeting. God is telling the people, I want to spend time with you. I want you to set aside time in your life, uh, divine appointments, to spend time with me. Uh, Secondly, each one of these feasts uh, in the life of Israel was a way of of helping them remember their story, the story of what God had done in their life. So if you look at verses 5 and 6, that's talking about the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. That's the story of how God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So every year they celebrated this feast. It was a way of saying to them, hey, this is your story. This is who you are. This is where you come from. Or if you look at verses 10 and 11, that's known as the Feast of First Fruits. That was a feast that happened right after Passover, and it was a way for Israel to remember the story of how God promised to bring them into a land of flourishing and abundance and of well-being, and that they should remember that story by offering a sheaf of the first fruits of their harvest as a way of honoring God's promise to bring them into a land of abundance. Each one of these feasts is a way of helping Israel to remember the story they're in, the story of what God has done in their life, because we need to know the story we're in in order to know how to live in the world. So for instance, um, at a much smaller level, uh, I remember once, uh, it was right after Mike Brown was shot, And I went to a community meeting at a church down in South City. Actually, our worship leader, Mary's dad, is the pastor of that church. And during that meeting, someone said, you know, St. Louis is finally having their civil rights moment. So what they meant is that during the 60s in the civil rights movement, there were protests that happened in other cities, but they never happened here. They were finally happening here in St. Louis. And I remember at that moment, it hit me like a ton of bricks that our feet right now are standing in the streams of history. That what was happening now was connected to what happened 50 years ago. And that was connected to what happened 400 years ago when the first slaves were brought to America And that what was happening right now was also going to have an impact on what happened 50 years from now or 100 years from now. It's all part of the same story. So these feasts are are ways of helping Israel remember the story that they're in. Now, it'd be easy for us to say, okay, great, that's wonderful for Israel, but it's their story. It doesn't have anything to do with me. And that's an understandable thing to say, but... Actually, it does have something to do with us. We just don't realize it. Because if you've been with us throughout this series, one of the things we keep seeing is that Leviticus is just one part of a much bigger story. And that story begins all the way back in Genesis. God created this world to be a place of goodness, beauty, and perfection. But because of human rebellion, the world is falling apart. So we've got things like sickness, disaster, poverty, racism, violence. But the rest of the Bible is the story of God's promise, his mission to transform the world and to bring about a world made new. Leviticus is all about the story of a God who's doing new creation. It's all about a new world, new people, new lives. And and we see that here in this chapter with the repetition of the number seven. Because in the Bible, seven is the number of perfection and completion because God created the world in seven days. And I feel like I always have to say this, but um, 
you know, there have been many Christians throughout history who have recognized that it doesn't necessarily have to mean seven literal 24-hour days. But seven in the Bible is the number of perfection or completion. In this passage, it's filled with sevens. So if you take a look, um, God begins by telling the Israelites, every seventh day, take a Sabbath, do no work. And then there are six other feasts in addition to that, bringing the total number of feasts to seven. And then the three last feasts take place in the seventh month. Do you see the picture? Everything in the rhythms of Israel's life is all about driving into their hearts sevens, sevens, sevens. It's the seventh day. Seven feasts, seven months. It's all about a God who's doing new creation. It's all about a God who's taking a world that's falling apart and bringing about a world that's made new. Now, here's the thing we need to think about. Um, Do you believe in progress? Do you believe in the idea that it's important for us to try to make the world a better place? Of course we do. But here's the question. Where does that idea come from? We're looking at it. Thomas Cahill is a well-known historian who's written a number of popular books. One of the most famous is a book called The Gifts of the Jews. In that book, he says that the ancient world, unanimously, the ancient world saw history as a wheel that's just going around and around and around. It's not going anywhere. It's just a never-ending cycle of death and rebirth. So the ancient world didn't have any idea of things like progress or change or making the world a better place. Thomas Cahill says the gift of the Jews was this idea that there was not only a God who created this world, but a God who's changing this world. That this was not the God of the wheel, but the God of the journey, because this is a God who's taking people from one place and leading them to a different place. That that this is a God who's transforming the world so that history is not just a wheel that's going around and around. It's a story that's going somewhere. All of a sudden, change becomes possible. Transformation becomes possible. All of a sudden, progress becomes possible because of the Jews, because of Israel, because of this story. We take the idea of progress for granted, but it comes to us from the Bible The story of a God who's taking a world that's falling apart and bringing about a world made new. And that leads to our second point. We've just seen the story of Israel, but secondly, we need to see that the story of Israel really is the story of us. Because at this point, it would be easy for us to think, okay, great, we get this idea of progress from Israel. What a wonderful principle. But Isn't the important thing taking the principle of progress and focusing on that rather than the particulars of Israel's story? So we might say, look, you know, we're modern people. We live in a pluralistic world. And yeah, there are lots of religions out there. And there are differences between them. But surely the truly important thing is the principles that all of these religions have in common. Things like love and inclusion and making the world a better place. And isn't the really important thing for us um, to focus on those principles and apply them to our lives rather than to worry about whether one particular religion is true? So, in other words, in our culture, we would say, look, there are lots of different religions, lots of different stories. They may be true. They may not be true. But, we think, the important thing is not whether they're true. The important thing is that those stories point us to a deeper reality 
that is true. And in our culture, the default deeper reality is be a good person. And if you can't be a good person, at least try not to be a jerk. Try to make the world a better place. And if you do those things, if there's a God and you're doing those things, then that God will love you and accept you. Hakuna Matata. That is the default deeper reality of our culture, or DDR for short. Our default deeper reality. That is the story of our culture. But friends, it is exactly at this point that the Bible brings a tremendous challenge to our DDR. Because as you read through the story of the Bible, one of the things you see is that um, not only is the whole meaning of history wrapped up in the story of Israel, that would be offensive enough. As you go through the Bible, what you find out is that it's saying that the whole meaning of history is wrapped up in the story of one man, Jesus Christ. And that the story of Israel and all of the feasts in this passage, uh, they they are simply helping them to remember by pointing them forward to the reality that, that all of this stuff is pointing forward to Jesus and the story of the gospel. So for instance, it's no coincidence that Jesus chose the Passover feast as, as the night, the feast, to disclose to his followers the meaning of his death. Because remember the story of Passover. God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and, and here's how he did it. He said, I want you to slaughter a lamb, take its shed blood, smear it on the doorposts of your house, and then when the angel of death comes through Egypt, it will see the blood on your doorposts, pass over you, and you will be set free. Jesus had the audacity to say that story is about me. And understand something, Jesus was a Jewish man. His followers were Jewish people. It wasn't like Jesus was doing some kind of disrespectful cultural appropriation here. Jesus was saying, I am the lamb whose shed blood on the cross will rescue everyone, the whole world, from evil, sin, and death. The story of Passover is pointing forward to Jesus. Or we talked about the Feast of Firstfruits. That right after the Passover, Israel would offer a sheaf of the firstfruits of their harvest as a way of remembering God's promise to bring them into a place of material abundance and flourishing and, and well-being. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says Jesus Christ is the firstfruits of the resurrection He's pointing back to the Feast of First Fruits, and he's saying that story, that feast is pointing forward to Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to bring about a world made new. That the kind of world that you and I think about when we think about progress, only infinitely greater. Friends, these feasts in Leviticus 23 are, are not just for Israel. They're a preview of the story of Israel Uh, I mean, the story of Jesus, which is for the whole world. Now, does that mean that the story of Israel doesn't matter or it isn't true? Not at all. It's kind of like a telescope. Um, You know, what you have in a telescope is a, a bunch of cylinders that fit one inside the other. And when the telescope is collapsed, you can still see through it, just not very far. But as you extend each cylinder in the telescope, it's still pointing at the same place on the horizon, but now you can see further. Now you can see more clearly. Leviticus 23 is like a telescope that's collapsed. It's still pointing at Jesus. You just can't see it unless you extend the cylinders. Now, um, do you realize what this means? 
It means that when you read the Bible, um, the point is not that Jesus is just one more story. It may be true, it may not be true, but, but the point is that it's pointing us to a deeper reality that is true. That is not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is that Jesus, the story of Jesus, is the deeper reality to which all of the other stories point. And what is that deeper reality? Remember the DDR, the default deeper reality of our culture. It says, be a good person, God will love you. That is not the deeper reality that, of Jesus. I mean, remember the story of Israel. They needed to be rescued. They were slaves. They were in bondage. They didn't have the power to set themselves free. They needed someone or something to do it for them. That is the deeper reality of the human condition. The story of Israel is the story of us. And it's a story of weakness, not of strength. Friends, traditional religion is all about strongness. It's all about being strong. Be a good person. Make the world a better place. Be awesome, and God will love you and accept you. That's all about you being strong, you being powerful, you rescuing yourself. The gospel is a story about acknowledging that we're weak and we need to be rescued. That is radically different from the DDR of our culture, that we have to acknowledge that we're weak and that we need to be rescued. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that it offers us, it shows us a savior who came to rescue us by becoming weak himself. Because who is Jesus Christ? He is the God of the universe. There is no one stronger or mightier or more powerful than Jesus. And yet, when Jesus Christ came to earth to rescue us, he did not come as a social elite. He did not come as a mighty general or a political leader. He came as a socially marginalized, ethnically despised, economically exploited nobody. And yet, through his weakness, he helped uh, weak ones like you and me to become strong because the apotheosis of weakness, the, the culmination, the climax of the whole Jesus story is the cross. Friends, do you want to know the story of the world? Do you want to know the story of you and me, the story of us? Look at the cross. The cross shows you the deeper reality of the human condition. It shows a world that's in rebellion against God, a world full of all kinds of greed and lust and, and ambition and jealousy and pride and violent hatred that ground up the most beautiful life that ever lived. But if you look at the cross, it also shows you the deeper reality about God that you are so loved, so valued, so cared for, so treasured, that the God of the universe would allow himself to be ground up for you. That's the deeper reality that the gospel is showing us. And friends, as we take that reality into our lives, that anchors our lives in this gospel story, creating a new reality in our lives. I mean, look at the cross. If you want to know the deeper reality of the world, the deeper reality of the human condition, the deeper reality of God, look at the cross. It shows you deeper reality. And the amazing thing about this deeper reality is it happened in history. I mean, you can go to Jerusalem and stand within yards, somewhere within the vicinity of where Jesus Christ was actually crucified. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It happened in history. Ultimate reality entered the world in order to bring about a new reality in this world. And that leads us to our last point. We've seen the story of Israel. 
We've seen that the story of Israel is the story of us. But lastly, how do we live in light of this story? What do we do with all of this information? Because remember, these feasts in Leviticus are ways of, they're divine appointments that anchor the people's story in their hearts in order to change the way that they live in the world. So what does that mean for us? Well, let me speak first to those of you who may be exploring faith. Um, There are a couple of things I would encourage you to allow yourself to be challenged by, if I could say it like that. And the first is this, what is your DDR? And are you willing to allow your deep, default deeper reality of the way the world really is, are you willing to allow that possibly to be challenged? In other words, does, does your DDR actually explain the world that you live in? And here's what I mean by that. For the last 300 years, um, our Western culture has operated out of a DDR that says there may be a God, there may not be a God, but it doesn't really matter because human beings now have the responsibility for perfecting the world. And the way we do that is through things like science, technology, and reason. That is the DDR of our world. The the broad name for that project is called secularism. What we've done is we've taken the biblical idea of progress and we have substituted humanity instead of God as, the, as the, the change agent for making that progress happen. As Mark Sayers, one of my favorite writers, says, secularism is seeking the kingdom without the king. That is broadly what secularism has been trying to do over the last 300 years. I would invite you to consider the fact that what we're seeing today in our world, this dark timeline, as some people call it, this nightmarish reality that we find ourselves in, is not just the failure of democracy. It's not just a failure of capitalism. It is the collapse of the whole project of secularism. And so what we need to ask ourselves is, are we going to keep doubling down on the same systems that created all of these problems in the first place? Or are we going to turn to God? Will we bow before the real king of the universe? And by the way, this is a question that Christians should be asking too, especially Western Christians, maybe even also especially white Christians, because we are just as captive to idolatry of money, Politics, science, technology, pleasure, possessions, we are just as captive to idolatry of those things, just as captive to the secular project. We need to allow ourselves to be challenged by this idea that human power doesn't have the power to perfect the world, much less to even make it a much better world, even a worse world. Are you willing to allow yourself to be challenged by that idea? Secondly, if you're exploring faith, I would invite you to investigate the historical reality of the Jesus story. And um, because here's the thing, the Bible says that, that Jesus is the deeper reality, but you won't be able to make a decision about that unless you understand who Jesus actually is. Let me give you three very simple steps to help you begin that process. First, read one of the Gospels. Have you ever read one of the four historical accounts of Jesus's life? Take a couple of hours and just read through one of those gospel accounts of his life. Second, um, it's very difficult to understand, fully understand what's going on in the gospels unless you have some idea of the cultural, political, and religious context of first century Jewish life in Roman-occupied Palestine. How many experts on that are there in the room? (laughs) 
It's very helpful to have an understanding of the context in order to understand the gospel. Otherwise, we end up um, projecting all kinds of um, unhistorical, um, inaccurate interpretations on the passage. We have to understand the historical context. There are lots of great resources to help you do that. Let me mention two in particular. There are two very wonderful, very brief books that will help you understand the context. And these are really good for Christians too. One of them is Jesus a very short introduction by Richard Bauckham. He's a uh, world-renowned biblical scholar. Jesus, a very short introduction. Or there's another one called A Doubter's Guide to Jesus by John Dixon. A Doubter's Guide to Jesus by John Dixon, another uh, world-renowned historian. These books will help you understand the context of the gospel so that when you're reading the gospel, you'll have some idea of of what the, the social, political, and cultural context is that you're reading. Now, here's the third thing. If you read one of those gospels and you read one of those books, and we'll have copies of those books next week if you want to pick up a copy. If you read one of the gospels and read one of those books, thirdly, I will buy you lunch at a restaurant of your choice in the Central West End (laughs) to talk about what you've read. But I would love to hear your thoughts and, and, and process what you've read, okay? Now, secondly, if you're a Christian here this morning, remember that these feasts are ways of anchoring the story in our lives in order to change the way we live in the world. So what does that mean for us? Well, first of all, we need to understand that Our world is already filled with all kinds of other feasts that are anchoring a different story in our lives. One of them is in less than a week. And it's not Thanksgiving. It's Black Friday. Feast day. Right? I mean, they come these names. And fast on its heels is Cyber Monday. And then there's all kinds of other ones coming along. There's so many of them, I can't even keep track of them anymore. Do you not think that these are feast religious days that are shaping our hearts to see the world in a certain way, to see this world as a, as a consumeristic place? Of course they are. Another annual feast in America is Super Bowl Sunday, biggest worship day of the year. And then, of course, every four years in November, on the Tuesday following the first Monday of the month, There's one of the biggest religious feasts in America. It's called the presidential election. Do you not think that these events, these rituals, are shaping the way we see the world and the way we live in this world? Of course they are. Human beings are by nature ritual beings. The rituals anchor a story in our lives. They change the way we live in this world by by forcing us, shaping us to see the world in a specific way. And so what are the counter feasts or the counter rituals that will anchor a different story, an alternate story in our lives? what, What are the things that will pull us out of the default deeper reality, the DDR of our culture, and instead will announce to us a true deeper reality, the TDR, in our lives. Well, one of them is what we're doing right now. Weekly worship is one of the most powerful ways of anchoring the story of the gospel in your life. In fact, every week we keep the feast of the Lord's Supper. This is one of the most powerful ways of of drilling the gospel story deep into your hearts, that this story is telling us the story that we need to be rescued And that there is a God who descended into this earth and became weak in order to rescue us. 
Um, another annual set of feasts is, of course, we have Christmas and Easter. These are not just meaningless, mindless things that we do as Christians. We have actual seasons leading up to these days. So for Christmas, it's the season of Advent. That's a, a season of hope and expectation. Or we have Easter. The season leading up to that is Lent. That's a season of repentance and renewal. These are ways of anchoring the story in our lives, pulling us out of the default deeper reality of our culture and anchoring the true deeper reality of Jesus in our hearts. And by the way, um, it doesn't even have to be weekly or yearly. Every single day, throughout the day, we can be holding many feasts in our lives. For instance, doing things like morning, noon, and evening prayer. Not in a legalistic way, not in a way to earn salvation from God, but, but as a way of, of anchoring the gospel in our lives. And it doesn't have to take a long time. It could be a short scripture reading, a short prayer. But we do these things throughout the day as ways of anchoring the story in our lives, pulling us out of the DDR and announcing an alternate reality in our lives. Friends, we need that announcement of that alternate reality in our lives on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a yearly basis, throughout our lives. We need to announce the alternate reality of Jesus Christ in our life. It's kind of like what you see in verse 24. If you look at verse 24, it was called the Feast of Trumpets. On the first day of the seventh month, there would be a loud trumpet blast. You know how we have those tornado sirens here in St. Louis? You can hear it everywhere. It, it, the, the trumpet blasts in Israel on the first day of the seventh month were announcing the upcoming day of atonement, one of the biggest feasts of the year, that God is renewing all things. God is renewing people. It was announcing an alternate reality. We need to have things like that in our life. Let me give you a, an amazing story that illustrates that. Nagai Takashi was a Japanese radiologist during World War II. Now, he grew up as an academic, scientific guy. He didn't believe in God. But while he was going to medical school in Nagasaki, um, the school was within earshot of the Urakami Cathedral, and every morning the church bells would ring, announcing a different reality. Now, he didn't believe in that reality, but then his mother died, and it got him thinking, and he started reading the Pensees by Blaise Pascal, which is a, basically a book that's reflecting on the Christian life. And Nagai Takashi ended up becoming a Christian. But then in June of 1945, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer as a result of exposure to all of the radiation that he was working with. And, and he thought that his wife, Midori, was going to end up being a widow. But then in August of that year, the atomic bomb fell on Nagasaki. Takashi barely survived. His wife didn't. And he went to the rubble of their house and he found her ashes there. But in the midst of that living hell, as he was shoveling her ashes into a pail, he found a cross that she'd been holding in her hand, that in the midst of, of the ashes, in the midst of the hell, it was announcing an alternate reality to him. And so he spent the rest of his life that he had... Um, dedicating himself to helping other survivors, to rebuilding Nagasaki, to studying the effects of radiation, even offering his own body for research in that endeavor. 
And all the time, he never stopped sharing his faith in Christ with the other survivors of the blast. But there was one event in particular that especially shaped the rest of his life. On Christmas Eve of 1945, a bare four months after the dropping of the atomic bomb, Nagai and several of his friends made their way to Yurikami Cathedral. It didn't exist anymore. It had been destroyed in the blast. But amazingly enough, one of the church bells had survived the bomb. And so they hung it on a wooden beam and they started ringing the bell at night to announce the Christmas mass, announce the Christmas feast, announce the Christmas worship. And it was in the midst of those ashes, in the midst of that wasteland, in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of everything that would have announced a different reality that would have said, this darkness, this wasteland is ultimate reality. The bells were announcing an alternate reality that in the midst of the ashes, there's a God who descended into the ashes to make all things new. The bells were announcing an alternate reality, the true, deeper reality of Jesus Christ. Friends, in your lives, every day, ring a bell. Sound a trumpet. In other words, meet your God in scripture and prayer. Take those divine appointments to be with him. Every week, worship with other Christians. I know this sounds like so basic, so stupid. You do this, it will change your life. Every year, fill your life with rhythms and rituals and, and, and feasts that will transform your life that will shape your heart, anchor the gospel story more and more in your life. And as you do that, it will transform you more and more so that you will become a ringing bell in the lives of the people around you, that your life would be a ringing bell, a sounding trumpet, announcing an alternate reality in the lives of the people around you, that there is a king, there is a Lord, there is a savior. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is the true, deeper reality. Let's pray.